Lucas on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life. I'm Jeff Lucas. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Stanford University neurobiologist Robert Sapolsky has caused quite a fuss recently with the publication of his latest book, Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. After more than 40 years studying, Sapolsky has reached the conclusion that virtually all human behaviour is as far beyond our conscious control as the convulsions of a seizure, the division of cells or the beating of our hearts. This means, according to that academic, that a man who shoots into a crowd has no more control over his fate than the victims who happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it means treating drunk drivers who barrel into pedestrians just like drivers who suffer a sudden heart attack and veer out of their lane. I couldn't disagree more. And I say that basing my worldview totally on the authority of Scripture and, in fact, a bit of common sense. In the Bible, history begins with a story of a couple in a garden being given the opportunity to choose, to decide well, and to experience the implications, the responsibility of making good choices. And Scripture is filled with hundreds and hundreds of choices for good or for evil. Free will is essential to how we see ourselves, fueling the satisfaction of achievement or the guilt of failing to do the right thing. Another academic who works in the same field of studies said, losing all belief in free will and moral responsibility would likely be catastrophic. Encouraging people to do so is dangerous and irresponsible. So, All of this prompts me to want to think about choices, decisions. Every one of us make thousands of them every day. And I hope that you'll decide to stay with me tonight, for as we consider the choices that are made for good and evil, we'll also look at the ultimate choice, the decision that Jesus made to rescue us. Decisions. The prayer was straight to the point. Where have you gone, God? I punched a pillow, laid back on the hotel bed and peered up hopefully at the off-white ceiling. I was drained by 20 hours of travel. The airplane food had been pretty horrible and fellow passengers in a crunched-together cattle class had been a challenge as well. Now jet-lagged and homesick, I focused again on that unyielding ceiling, half hoping that its stark whiteness would roll back to reveal the colour and clamour of a vast partying heavenly host. But the ceiling remained solid and clinical. There were only the beginning threads of a cobweb, no silken angels to be seen. I closed my eyes and listened with ears and heart. Perhaps a comforting divine voice, audible or internal, would whisper reassurance and direction. But there was nothing save the dull drone of traffic outside my hotel window, the relentless dirge of domesticity. Where have you gone, God? Suddenly the madness of my mission, or seemingly so, it overwhelmed me. I'd flown 6,000 miles to preach with no clue as to what to say. No hint came from the organisers of the event. Just bring whatever the Lord gives you. Fine. But right now, my hands and my heart, they were empty. 
Heaven was silent, and the absurdity, pretentiousness even, of a tiny being like me attempting to speak on behalf of the omnipotent creator of the universe crashed over me like a huge, suffocating wave, sweeping hope and confidence away. Now I was bobbing and flailing around in doubt's icy dark waters. My own words surprised me and shocked me as I spoke them out towards the ceiling. Is this it then, Jesus? Are we through, you and me, after all these years? Is it all over between us? Where have you gone, God? There was off-white silence from above and outside cars droned still. Perhaps you've had a few chats with the ceiling over the years. Don't be surprised by those moments. Read the Psalms and you'll find the Where Are You Then God prayer liberally scattered throughout. Maybe you occasionally wonder about the logic of living your life committed to the invisible. Twenty minutes later, my hotel room still awaited angelic room service. Nothing happened at all, but for no earthly reason, I made the decision to continue my dance in the dark. Sometimes faith is a cold, hard choice, a decision to trust. I live in Colorado, so very close to Columbine High School, where some years ago, the disastrous Columbine shooting took place. Cassie Burnell, a bright 17-year-old Colorado schoolgirl, made a choice, not in the plush comfort and safety of a hotel room, but while staring down the barrel of a smoking gun. Cassie was quietly reading her Bible when Trenchcoat Mafia members Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold marched in, armed to the teeth. Cassie was a relatively new Christian, but she was known on the campus of Columbine High School, Denver, as a radical witness for Jesus. One of the gunmen asked Cassie if she believed in God. The blood and the bodies around her made it clear what her fate would be if she owned up for Christ. Her response was calm. She decided, yes, I believe in Jesus. A second later, she was with the Jesus that she loved so much. That night, her brother found a passage from Philippians that she'd written out just two days earlier. She'd written, Now I have given up on everything else. I have found it to be the only way to really know Christ and to experience the mighty power that brought him back to life again and to find out what it means to suffer and to die with him. So, whatever it takes, I will be one who lives in the fresh newness of life of those who are alive from the dead. Eric Harris, one of the shooters, made a choice. Dylan Kleeboard made a choice. Just 12 people attended the dark, tragic funeral of Eric. Cassie's memorial service was packed. The police, the district attorney, the world's press, they were all there to say goodbye to the girl who planted her feet, lifted her head and said, whatever it takes. And at the funeral, 75 people made first-time commitments to Christ. Decisions. Decisions. Let's choose well. The man on the other end of the phone was cool. His sing-song Italian accent skipped and danced down the telephone, rich, exotic even. I pictured the face behind this Latin accent that wriggled now in my ear. He would be wearing heavy black Ray-Ban sunglasses, whatever the weather, shielding dark puppy dog eyes. 
and chiselled handsome cheekbones crease permanently either in a die-for-you smile or a furious don't-mess-with-me scowl of fury. His name is Gaetano Satili. He is purebred Sicilian and he looks and sounds like a walk-on part from The Godfather. But he is not in the Mafia. In fact, he was phoning me because of a little plan to give the mafioso a slap in the face. Italy's answer to Billy Graham, Gaetano is a fiery Pentecostal evangelist who believed that if it's worth preaching at all, it's worth preaching loud, with wild, flailing windmill arms and staccato bursts of oratory. He begs and commands his listeners to decide, to decide for Christ. He's a man obsessed, frantic to see souls saved. The name of his organisation proclaims his passion, Italia per Cristo, Italy for Christ utterly contemptuous of religion that fails to call the lost to the good news of grace, Gaetano travels the length and breadth of Italy, setting up makeshift platforms in city squares, bellowing the gospel to anyone who listen. But back to that Latin phone call. Gaetano was working on a very special project, hence his call to me. He was taking on the mafia with a huge Christian demonstration. A year earlier, Two court judges, including the famous Judge Falcone, had been blown to pieces by a mob-planted bomb on the road to Palermo Airport in Sicily. The world's newspapers had screamed banner headlines for a few days, but within weeks the media had moved on and the world had forgotten. But Gaetano had not forgotten. The first anniversary of the Palermo atrocity was not so far off, so why not let the Mafia know that there were those in Italy who did not appreciate their bloodletting? The Mafia claimed to own Italy. Why not tell them that Jesus Christ is the only rightful king of the nations? And so the plan was simple. Gaetano put out a call to all Christian believers in southern Sicily. They were to converge upon Palermo by train, by boat and by car and hold a huge protest and proclamation meeting in the city square. They would carry signs that said, down with the mafia, Jesus is alive. And they would march through the city accompanied by a couple of handy armoured cars manned by the police with machine guns at the ready, shouting defiance to the mob and praise to Christ. And now, as Gaetano breathlessly poured his heart and strategy into the phone, I listened carefully, but nervously. He wanted me to go, to march at his side and to be one who spoke to the crowd. Visions of me waking up in the morning and staring into the eyes of a dead horse, kindly placed there by an Al Pacino lookalike, cascaded through my mind. The sights of a sniper's rifle as per the day of the jackal. Me walking through sweaty Palermo with a gigantic red and white target on my chest. Now, I am allergic to most forms of pain and I did not want to go to Palermo. God, surely did not want me to go to Palermo. I told Gaetano so. It sounded really lame, of course, my stammering about needing to pray about it and not feeling right about it. And phrases like these come in handy when needing a bit of divine endorsement for what we really want to do or not do. Except with people like Gaetano Satili. He snorted and laughed. The matter was settled. I was going. All will be well, he said. God will be with us. I thought I'd like God and a bulletproof vest. The march itself was a wonderful carnival event, a celebration of the power of love that conquers hate and violence. There was the rumour of a death threat on Gaetano, which he met with humour as dark as his suit. 
Finally, we arrived at the city square, which was heaving with excited, sweaty believers, thrilled to be proclaiming their loyalty to the real boss. I took my turn with others who'd flown in from around the world to bring their greetings to the exuberant crowd. The greetings went well, and a modern miracle was performed in that a dozen or so preachers managed to keep their comments to under 60 seconds each. Consider the temptation of a platform, a crowd, a television camera or two, and you'll know that the brevity of those preachers, including me, was a miracle something akin to the raising of Lazarus. Two hours later, the event was all over for me and the other visiting guests. But as Gaetano and I made our way through the rapidly dispersing crowd, I looked up at the windows of the apartments that overlooked Palermo City Square, true Italian-style drying laundry left in the warmth of the late afternoon sun. Some of the Christians had draped banners out of their windows. They were like those no-smoking signs. You know the ones, a red circle with a diagonal line drawn through the picture of a cigarette. These banners had red circles too, but the diagonal line was drawn through the word mafia, and next to this blatant anti-mob symbol was written the word Jesus. Within 24 hours, I would be gone from Sicily, a beautiful country with incredible food, fabulous scenery, and where judges are escorted home from the courts each day by the screaming sirens of an armed police patrol. I climbed onto a platform in that square and took 60 seconds to be brave. I marched in a colourful line of believers for an hour, shouted for Jesus, and then I got a plane home, a plane back to safety, a million miles from mafioso vengeance. But those who hung out their anti-mob laundry knew that they were making an irrevocable stand for Jesus. Their friends and neighbours would know that they were those Christians who decided, who chose to stand up to the might of the terrifying network of international criminals and declare that Jesus is really Lord. Theirs were real decisions, real choices of courage. Decisions. The man has cobalt steel eyes which mirror the deep blue of the rushing waters far, far below. He leans over the bridge for the 10,000th time, as if expecting to see something that he missed when, seconds ago, he last stared at the furious cauldron below. He is the bungee jumper. Down there, far below, boils a swirling, rushing, watery chaos, oblivion waiting its time. The watching crowd are rigidly tense, wanting him to cancel his death-defying leap, yet at the same time desperate to see him finally clamber over the rail and fly. Perhaps they feel guilty because their desire to see him jump is stronger than their hope for his safety. The time has come. Checking the coiled cord one last time, he hauls himself up onto the narrow rail, arms outstretched, a portrait of balance and poise. He stands there, his cold eyes staring straight ahead. If his body is still, then surely his nervous system is somersaulting within him. Perhaps he wrestles now with his brain, which screams its natural warnings about height and safety and death, and don't you know that humans are not supposed to fly? His eyelids drop and he looks down. Now he's on the rail. Nothing stands between him and the abyss below. All that is needed now is a decision the bending of the knees, pushing his whole body forward and out into nothing, the jump. 
His back is ramrod straight still, every muscle taut, adrenaline screaming around his body at an impossible rate now. And then, casting all of his careful preparation to the wind, he breaks his concentration and turns his head to the breathless crowd. They are transfixed because smiling doesn't seem appropriate. It's too trivial. The critical second arrives, the millisecond, when you choose, when you command your legs to push you out into nothing. Perhaps he senses the rushing onslaught of final fear, last-second terror, and so, as if to flee the approaching paralysis that cannons towards him, he throws himself out, swallow-like, into the air. He glides outward, and then, as the crowds cry out, he plummets downward towards the boiling rocks and foam below. His stomach is in his throat. The wind rushes through his hair as he plummets down. It's only two or three seconds, and then... He feels the tension of the cord, straining against his weight to take up the slack. Let the calculations be correct. He should decelerate quickly, allowing him to just hit the rapids with his extended fists before bouncing back up again. He has beaten his fear. The crowds far above cheer. He has done it. He is the bungee jumper. What did it feel like, Jesus, the day you peered over the parapet of heaven and prepared to take your own dive? Did you stare and recoil at the swirling madness below? You were to plummet from that calm and that place of song into our sweaty, writhing chaos, into the thunderdome of rebellion from immortality to the grime and tedium of time. Did you look around you at the sea of stunned angel faces bowed and paled now at the sight of this holiest sacrifice. Can we tiptoe for a moment on that holy ground and consider the magnificent Christ becoming a tiny embryonic speck? What work of God could bring that metamorphosis about as the Prince of Peace becomes seed? This is a miracle which dwarfs the 5,000 fed by a long way. Perhaps this towers above the empty tomb, this longest journey ever from the throne of heaven to a virgin womb. We have to blink to look away. Our eyes and hearts can't grasp this most enormous step. No comforting cord held you in your dive earthward. It was the leap of no return except by that one Calvary way. Down and down you came. And then the creator partner of all that is became the pink-faced baby crowned in a stinking shed. The angels couldn't resist. The magnificence of it all demanded that the heavens be split open for a while, if only to lonely shepherds on night shift. Wise men came by, drawn by reverberations in the spirit world, directed to the very spot by an obedient star. You came, Jesus, and pitched your tent among us. But there is a truth that is a billion times more difficult to grasp than even this incarnation of yours, which is hard enough to comprehend. My mind begins its own rebellion at the very idea of a throne-to-womb journey. But then the reason for your voluntary dive is the news that is really staggering. Because you stood on the handrail of heaven and free fell for us. You looked over, looked down, saw us, saw me, and then you chose, you decided, you jumped. Lucas.
Business on Life.